Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science inside podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Dr. Sean Drummond, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Self-Improvement Atlas. It's such a pleasure to have you in the studio. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Can you uh, introduce yourself um, to our audience for a second? Yeah, sure. So um, as you said, I'm Professor Sean Drummond. I'm a professor of clinical neuroscience at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University here in Melbourne. Uh, I am uh, very broadly speaking, um, an expert in sleep and sleep research. Uh, I have a particular interest in, um, on the one hand, the impact of sleep and sleep loss on brain function and cognition, our ability to think, learn, pay attention. Uh, and, and then on the other hand, I have a very strong interest in the interaction between sleep and mental health. Okay, cool. I. I'm 100% sure that our entire audience has like definitely got a relevant problem to today's topic. We are going to be talking about sleep um, and sleep and mental health in general. Um, before we kind of get into that, we have a segment called Have You Met Sean Drummond, uh, where we get to know you a little bit and get more comfortable with you. Um, I'm just going to throw you some very easy questions. Okay. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, fantastic. Uh, what is your favorite book? Uh, I would say the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm. It is, I think that's the most popular um, answer to this question on this podcast. (laughs) So many people, and I I get it. I totally get it. I can't say I've read it. I tried, Um, but I I understand. (laughs) I do. Uh, What about a favorite movie? Um, I would say the original Star Wars trilogy. Mm -hmm. Those are a favorite of mine too. I'm definitely big on Star Wars (laughs) for sure. Uh, What's a podcast that you've been listening to lately? Uh, well, so it's probably terrible to admit on uh, in this venue, but I don't really listen to too many podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one that's most regular is uh, The World Today from ABC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's a famous role model uh, that you've kind of looked up to? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have role models who are famous people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I don't really know those people, so I'm not sure how they, you know, could be a role model for me. I think my, some of my biggest role models are uh, the mentors that I've had over the years in science, and in particular, my PhD mentor, um, a guy by the name of J. Christian Gillen, uh, who is one of the founders of the field of sleep research and, and was a huge inspiration teaching me how to be uh, a scientist. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of famous if he's a f- one of the founders of the field of. <laughs> well, famous in a very limited way. Chris actually told me one time uh, when I was getting my PhD that in science, if 200 people know who you are, that makes you famous. Right. Um, and with inflation, that number is probably a little bigger today. But, um, <laughs> but yes, in that context, Chris was very famous. <laughs> right, right. We'll count. We'll count that. That definitely counts. <laughs> um, what about the last course you've completed? The last course I've completed, um, well, certainly the last formal course I would have completed would have been my PhD many, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I don't know. Does that count? I'm sure that counts. Do you have an informal course that you've completed, <laughs> like pottery? <or> oh, geez, <laughs> that would be okay. Actually, uh, putting it that way, it would be sailing. Okay. Right. So okay. my wife and I picked up sailing as a hobby. Um, 15 or 20 years ago. And so that was probably the the last sort of major training uh, that I would have done. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, sailing. How do you, like, do you own the boat as well or? No, we don't. Um, we So we picked this up when we lived in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, 
the sailing clubs have a fleet of boats that they own. So you sort of join the club. It's almost like a car share. You join the club, and then when you want to rent the boat, you just rent it for the afternoon and go out right. sailing. Right. That's really cool. That saves a lot of space in the garage as well. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> for sure. Uh, all right. Well, that's the end of the section. Uh, you're known now, and our audience uh, can now call you their acquaintance, uh, which is great. Um, but we'll now move on uh, to, I guess, the, what I like to call the meat of our show. Um, we're going to be talking about sleep, specifically sleep patterns in relation to mental health. Am I? That, that is your expertise. That is one of the things I'm very comfortable speaking about. Yes. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, but to kind of start off, you know, our show is about personal development. So how, how do you define personal development? When I think about personal development, I think I think two key things. One is, is trying to be the best version of you that you can. And, and I guess related to that is um, trying to live as much as you can consistent with your own values. And I think you know nobody can live 100% concordant with their own values all of the time. Life just does not give us that luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that trying to sort of move towards a self-actualization is trying to live as consistent as we can with our values. Right, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, sometimes we, need to analyze our values in order to understand who we are Mm. and if you're going to improve it's like well where are you heading to if you you don't have that basis to uh, that guideline to move towards and values is kind of i don't know if that makes any sense i said a lot of words yeah (laughs) well and i think values are kind of the the rules by which we try to move forward and improve right Mm -hmm. it may or may not be the end point but it's it kind of helps define the parameters of the journey, perhaps. Yeah, it's like a guideline. Mm. Yeah, for sure. What What do you feel are kind of the main challenges in personal development? Well, I mean, I think to some extent, uh, you know, I sort of uh, half-jokingly said that life doesn't give us the luxury of living according to our values, but I think that that's true to some extent. We can't always live according to our values, and, and that's a challenge. So just as a personal example, um, I very strongly value investing in socially responsible um, ways, but that's not always possible. Sometimes um, when we, when I go to the store and want to buy something, I don't have a choice of something that was sourced from a socially or environmentally responsible way. And so, um, you know, I either do without or I compromise. And sometimes it's not reasonable to do without. And so you compromise, but you do the best you can wherever you can. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it, especially because cost of living mm-hmm. crisis at the moment, mm-hmm. not everyone can afford to choose the socially responsible options, which are often for good reason, priced higher than the stuff that's less socially responsible. So it's, it's, it's kind of just a matter of picking up battles really every single time. I think that's a very nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to like our main topic, sleep. How do you define it? So that is a deceptively complicated question, actually, yeah. right? So um, sleep is not a state of unconsciousness where we close our eyes, fall asleep, not a whole lot happens. We wake up, we open our eyes, and move on with our day. Sleep is actually two distinct states of consciousness within the period of sleep. Um, And they are um, things that we call, the the two states of consciousness are rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which is a stage of sleep where we do the majority of our dreaming. About 20% of the night is there. And then um, if you're not in REM sleep, you are in what we logically call non-REM sleep. We're not particularly creative in the sleep field with our names. Um, Non-REM sleep is um, then further broken down into three stages of sleep, which again are very creatively called stage one, stage two, and stage three. Uh, The bigger the number, the deeper the stage of sleep. So stage one is this stage of sleep where it's kind of the transition between wake and sleep, and maybe we're not really sure whether we're awake or asleep, and our mind is kind of wandering, but we don't have a lot of control over where it's going, and we can kind of hear what's going on around us, but we're not really processing it. That's kind of stage one sleep. And then stage two sleep is a little bit deeper than that. I like to think of it as kind of the Goldilocks stage of sleep. It's not super deep, it's not super shallow. We spend about half the night probably in stage two sleep. 
And then stage three sleep is our deepest, most restorative stage of sleep. It's also called deep sleep. Sometimes it's called delta sleep or slow wave sleep. So um, listeners may have heard these various terms, but essentially it's our really, you know, I'm sleeping like a log. It's very hard to wake me up stage of sleep. And if you get a reasonable amount of this during the night, that's when you wake up and think, ah, that night of sleep did me a lot of good. Mm. Um, So I would say uh, without geeking out too much, that's kind of the basic way to think about sleep. Right, yeah. By the way, it is perfectly fine for you to geek out. It's it's my <laughs> job to process what you're saying and hopefully. Got you. <laughs> uh, but we, we do love a bit of geeking out um, on the show. How, how does sleep relate to personal development? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, right? So if personal development is trying to be the best version of ourself and trying to live with our values, I think sleep is fundamentally important to allowing us to do that, right? So sleep is one of the three pillars of health along with um, nutrition and exercise. I think arguably, at least I could argue, um, that sleep is the most important of those because sleep um, influences our ability to engage in and benefit from exercise. Sleep influences um, our ability to process and benefit from the nutrition that we give ourselves. Um, And then thinking more about sort of living with our values, trying to be our best person. Sleep has, uh, touches every single, literally every single organ in the body is influenced by sleep. And so certainly it influences our physical health in very dramatic ways. As we'll be talking about in detail, it influences our mental health in very dramatic ways. Even simple things like sleep plays a big role in emotion regulation. So just our ability to interact with people, to read the emotions in their face, to um, respond in in level, kind ways to people is are all influenced by sleep. And I think many of us could think about a poor night of sleep and think that we're kind of irritable and annoyed the next day and our patience is much less. And right that often then becomes inconsistent with being the person who we want to be. And so mm-hmm. I think sleep is intimately involved with, with the idea of personal development. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, we, we read so much about how important sleep is, but we still struggle to prioritize it and make sure that we are having a good night's sleep uh, throughout the night. But it, it never, it, it always helps to reiterate how important it is and all the different ways it can it can affect. Um, what, what are the challenges in having a good quality sleep? Yeah, well, I think actually you just hit on one of the major ones, and that is prioritizing it, right? I think it, it our societies, um, certainly most Western societies, uh, have evolved this ethos that uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Mm-hmm. And so whatever it is I need to do, it's probably more important than sleep, even if it's something as stupidly mundane as checking social media. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that is kind of the number one problem. And there's really interesting research that shows, for example, um, teenagers are notorious for not getting enough sleep. It's not always their fault because we force them to wake up at ungodly hours and get to school in the morning. And biologically, their body isn't ready to go to sleep at 10 or 11 p.m. And so we're sort of fighting, our, our social policies are fighting biology, but regardless, There's this interesting research that shows you can teach teenagers all about sleep health and they can ace a quiz and know all of the information about sleep health and yet that doesn't change their behavior. And so knowledge in this case is not necessarily power um, or at least not the power to change. And I think it is a matter of um, thinking about, going back to my comment about values, thinking about how does sleep interact with my values in such a way that sleep helps me to live in accordance with my values. And no doubt there will be conflicts there as well, but I think the more people learn about the benefits of sleep and the the, uh, negative impact of not getting a sufficient amount or quality of sleep, the more they realize that it does make it hard for them to, poor sleep makes it hard for them to live according to their values. And hopefully that kind of realization is the, becomes the internal motivation needed to prioritize sleep in a in, in the way that biologically it should be prioritized. Yeah, and I, I also, I would imagine that even just realizing how much of a problem it is can be difficult. Because like you said, people will have all the knowledge and then still not follow it. Mm. And uh, I guess, I'm just thinking of like 
people who are probably have been workaholics for a very, very long time, so long that they can't even remember what it's like to have a good night's sleep and therefore don't really know the difference or understand the difference that it makes. Yeah, and, and that's the uh, not an atypical profile of someone who we get into our sleep clinics, uh, who come in and something finally triggers them to come in and seek treatment for um, what can pr fairly broadly be defined as insomnia. Um, and that becomes one of the challenges. How do you unwind a lifetime full of behavioral patterns mm -hmm. uh, to allow the person to get better sleep? And um, so that's often one of the things we have to tackle very directly by the time somebody gets into the clinic. Now, when somebody gets to the clinic, usually that motivation is there. That's why they walk through the door in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so they're more willing to make some of the behavioral changes that we ask them to. Yeah. But it's it's a challenge, and, and I think lots of people walk around with really crappy sleep for a long time, either not realizing it's crappy sleep because it's just normal for them, um, or feeling uh, almost hopeless to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, I can sort of definitively say neither of those is true. Crappy sleep is not normal, and uh, there are plenty of things that one can do about it if one wants to get their sleep track back on track. Right, right. And you mentioned insomnia. Hmm. What exactly is insomnia? How do people know if they have it? Uh, when, how, how, how can we see the signs before it begins to get that bad? Yeah, so it's a good question, and, and there's a lot layered in there. So let me start, since you gave me permission to be geeky, let me start with sort of the geeky <laughs> definition, Yeah. right? So insomnia means problems falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early, unable to fall back asleep, three days a week or more for three months or more, right? So it becomes sort of a, a consistent pattern that's happening um, almost more days than not. Now, hearing that, one might ask, well, what does it mean problems falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early, right? It, is, does it take me too long to fall asleep? And by that, we use the uh, rule of thumb of 30 minutes. So more than 30 minutes to fall asleep, more than 30 minutes awake in the middle of the night, whether it be one long awakening or a bunch of short ones, and waking up more than 30 minutes before you want to, unable to fall back asleep, uh, that combined with the three days a week, three months or more, combined with significant daytime problems that the individual relates directly back to the fact that they had poor sleep. Mm -hmm. And that's a key part of it. Uh, and I'll talk about why in a second, but just to sort of flush that out, um, those problems during the day can be memory problems, concentration problems. It can be emotional problems like irritability or depression, anxiety. It can even be really diffuse things like I just can't really get my work done as efficiently when I'm not sleeping well. But it's something that's happening during the day that, that the individual says, yep, that's because I had crappy sleep last night. Um, because if you don't have daytime problems, it may simply be if you don't have daytime problems, but it's still taking you half an hour to fall asleep, it may simply be you're trying to go to bed way too early, right? If I tried to get in bed at 6 p.m. and fall asleep, there ain't no way I'd fall asleep in half an hour, right? And that's obviously an extreme example, but that's um, that's why it takes um, the, the addition of the daytime consequences before the sleep really becomes a disorder okay. as opposed to simply an annoyance. Right, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So in that case, what is good sleep? <laughs> good sleep. So I, I should preface it by saying uh, some aspects of good sleep. No, I shouldn't say that. Some aspects of sufficient sleep vary with age. Right. Good sleep, however, if, if we want to sort of say what is good quality sleep. So good sleep would be falling asleep in less than half an hour. If you wake up in the middle of the night, it's a wake up, roll over, fall back asleep, wake up, go to the bathroom, come back, fall back asleep. So fairly quickly being able to fall back asleep. And then sleeping through till what feels like a reasonable hour of the morning. Overall, if, you, if we wanna sort of put a number on it, if somebody is asleep 85% of the time that they are trying to be asleep, that's good healthy sleep. Mm 
And so in, a, in an eight hour window, God, I can't do that math that quickly on the top <laughs> of my head. Um, but if you're in bed for eight hours, eight of that is six, four. So if you're somewhere in the seven-ish hour range, you're probably okay. Um, now, and so that's quality of sleep. Quantity of sleep does vary with age. So younger kids need more sleep than adults. The typical adult needs seven hours of actual sleep. So not seven hours in bed trying to sleep, but seven hours of actual sleep to have the best long-term um, physical and mental health outcomes, or maybe to flip it on its head. If somebody is getting less than seven hours of sleep on average, that puts them at risk for poor physical and mental health outcomes down the road. Right, right. So I guess moving on from that, what can we ensure, what can we do to ensure that we get good quality sleep? So that depends on whether you're starting as a good quality sleeper and want it to keep it from deteriorating or mm -hmm. whether you've developed a sleep problem and need to treat it, right? Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, those would sort of be two different answers. But if we start with, I feel like I'm a pretty good sleeper now and I just kind of want to make sure I don't mess it up moving forward. A couple of key things that you might want to do would include having a very regular sleep-wake schedule. Go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time every night. Um, the ideal would be seven days a week. I can hear people rolling their eyes and saying, really, even on the days off and the weekends, I have to get up at six o'clock because that's what time I have to get up to go to work. So biologically, yes, that's the best thing to do. Realistically, we know that not everybody does that. Um, so if the, if the adjustment on the weekend is an hour or less, we can probably usually get away with that. Right. Um, where we run into problems is when the adjustment on the weekend is more than an hour, particularly getting up into the hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. And, and usually what that means is people are shifting things later. They're going to bed later, waking up later. That leads to a phenomenon known as social jet lag, which much like it sounds has the same kind of consequences as literal jet lag, as flying multiple time zones. Um, because if we think about what we're doing, say we're, we're uh, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleeper during the week, and then on the weekends, all of a sudden, we become a, a midnight to 8 a.m. sleeper. Mm -hmm. Sunday night then, having after having woken up at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, it's going to be much harder to go to bed at 10 o'clock Sunday night. It's going to be much harder to wake up at 6 a.m. Monday morning. And we essentially start the week with this jet lag-like sleep loss um, that then sets us up for a cruddy Monday and maybe moving on from there, right? And, and so that's why regularity can be so important. Uh, and we know, again, from the, from the science that the more regular somebody's sleep is in terms of the timing of it, the better health is in the long term. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that's one of the key things people can do. One of the other things that people can do to try to maintain good, healthy sleep is not engage in behaviors that are going to disrupt their sleep even if they sleep at the right time. Key number one to that, well, there's two keys to that. One is drinking caffeine too close to bedtime. <laughs> I think most people probably don't realize that caffeine can affect your sleep for eight to 10 hours after you drink it, which is long after the typical psychoactive alerting properties are gone, right? Okay. But if you drink coffee even after lunch, it can affect your sleep. Certainly if you're drinking coffee after dinner, it can affect your sleep. And so I think that's one thing people want to think about. And it's one of the first things we encourage folks to do when they come into the clinic is if they're drinking um, caffeine after midday, we get them to start cutting that way back to see how much benefit that can have on sleep. Um, the second big uh, behavioral interrupter of sleep is drinking alcohol. So alcohol has a dramatically bad impact on our sleep, and it does so in a cunningly deceptive way. And what I mean by that is if somebody drinks alcohol to the point where their blood alcohol gets up, um, you know, say into kind of the, the drink driving range, so not completely blotto passing out, but sort of socially intoxicated, right? Yeah. That level of drinking 
somebody will fall asleep faster. They will get more of that deep restorative sleep at the beginning of the night that I was talking about earlier. And so those feel like really positive things. I fell asleep really quick. I got really deep sleep. This must be good for me. The problem happens once we metabolize all of the alcohol in our system, which is you know roughly one drink an hour. So for most of the time, it's gonna be somewhere in the middle of the night we metabolize all of that. Then what happens is um, two big things happen in the body. One, our body temperature goes up and an increasing body temperature is a signal to our brain that we should be awake. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that happens is that there's a release of um, neurotransmitters in our brain that are typically present when we're awake and not present when we're asleep. So our brain is again getting all of these signals that it's time to be awake. So what happens, and I'm sure many people, including myself, can relate to this, um, in the second half of the night, you end up waking up. And you sometimes you wake up really hot and you can't fall back asleep, or maybe you wake up and you fall asleep, but then your sleep is really shallow and so you sort of wake up and fall asleep, wake up and fall asleep. And the second half of the night is completely ruined from a sleep perspective. And what we know is that um, if somebody, say, is having some trouble falling asleep and they drink alcohol to help themselves sleep, they'll get a good night of sleep at the beginning of the night, a really bad night of sleep in the second half of the night. If you compare that to somebody who maybe is also having trouble falling asleep, they don't drink alcohol, so it takes them, say, an hour to fall asleep, and then they have pretty normal sleep after that. That second person has a much better quantity and quality of sleep than the person who drank. And so um, I guess this big uh, uh, tirade is to suggest that um, we don't want to be, if we want to maintain healthy sleep, we don't want to be drinking close to bedtime um, because that is a surefire way of disrupting our sleep in pretty significant ways. Mm. And that, that second half disruption of sleep, it, or not disruption, but bad, bad quality sleep, does that lead to hangovers then in the morning? Is, is it linked? That's a good question. Um, I actually don't know the answer to that, whether mechanistically it's linked to the hangovers, right? Certainly um, some of the dehydration that comes from alcohol is, is linked to the hangovers. We do know that people who have disrupted sleep for whatever reason, say it's traffic noise or whatever is disrupting your sleep, um, do report higher rates of things like headaches in the morning and sleepiness, tiredness, fatigue, things like mm -hmm. that. So certainly some of those hangover symptoms might be related to the sleep itself. But I don't know, I don't know of any studies that have tried to tease that out and say how much is specifically related to sleep versus how much is related to the other physiological aspects of alcohol. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I was just asking because I, I know what lack of sleep feels like and I know what a hangover feels like <laughs> and they feel the same to me. <laughs> so um, I guess how, how does, we've kind of talked already a bit about how sleep can affect the brain, but some people experience like disruptive sleep for reasons beyond their control and outside of their control for example working very late <laughs> and uh how do they go about dealing with that i'm thinking naps but i don't know if that's the right answer <laughs> well it could be the right answer okay. right so i think it depends on um what's disrupting the sleep right so it really uh, annoyingly enough it's an it depends kind of answer um, i think if what is interrupting the sleep is shift work, which would be kind of the quintessential example of having to work really late, right? Um, there's a set of strategies, and, and shift work is a, is a bugger because then you're awake when your body wants to be asleep and you're trying to sleep when your body wants to be awake. Uh, but there's a series of strategies that people can use to try to um, maximize the quantity and quality of the sleep that they get in the context of shift work, mm -hmm. right? If the working late at night is um, more of a choice, right? So your job is during the day, but you feel for whatever reason that you need to be working late into the evening to get extra stuff done, catch up, whatever it is, right? Then, um, you know, then the far more obvious answer is where we started, which is prioritizing sleep. And I think people realizing that trading off sleep for work 
is actually leads to diminishing returns. So that we know when people are working while they're sleep deprived, or even working once they've been awake for more than about 18 hours, people are less efficient, they're less accurate, make more errors. Uh, so the work that they're doing is, is lower quality work and people would be better off getting a really good night of sleep and then being able to be maximally productive the next day mm -hmm. rather than trying to stay up and get extra stuff done at night when, when that stuff is poor, worse quality than, than what they're used to being able to do. Mm, yeah. What is kind of the optimal uh, like sleep hours is it the same for everyone because I like I'm not a morning person um, for me I sleep at 1am and wake up at 9 because I work in the afternoon so I don't have to do anything in the morning but I also realize that I also know when I do have to wake up earlier than that um, I feel disrupted during my day I don't think other people operate the same way. Is, I'm assuming it's different for everyone. It is, it's very different. And, and so what you're speaking to is something that we call chronotype, okay. um, right? So the, the cousin of sleep is circadian rhythms. And our circadian rhythms essentially are 24 hour rhythms that our body, um, lots of parts of our body go through that are roughly synchronized with the sun, mm -hmm. the 24 hour daylight that we have, right? Uh, but some people, their ideal, their body's ideal rhythms aren't perfectly in line with when the sun rises and when the sun sets. And, and um, so for example, some people, particularly classically teenagers and people up into their maybe mid twenties are what we call phase delayed. So biologically, their biological night does not turn on until very late, 12, midnight, 1 a.m., 1.30, something like that. Um, that's when their body starts to believe it's nighttime. And therefore, the biological night doesn't turn off until 9, 10, 11 in the morning. Okay. And so for those folks are evening types, and they do their best when they are able to um, live their life according to that biological rhythm. So you're a great example. You, because of what you do, you can get away with following your body's dictate and going to bed at one, waking up at nine, and you do really well when you can do that. Mm -hmm. Other people are morning types and, or uh, the extreme of that is what we would call phase advanced, where they might want to go to bed really early and wake up really early. The, the sort of extreme prototype of that would be a older adult in their 70s or 80s or something who um, is falling asleep at 8 a.m. but waking up at 4 a.m. or something like that, right? And, and most adults are kind of somewhere between the extremes, but there are people who they're, it's genetically driven. Their biology is to be a very late person or be a very early morning person, and that's the way they are their entire lives. And um, when they try to go against that, they're fighting their biology. It can be done, um, but people are, their sleep is much, um, it's much easier to have good quality sleep when somebody can align their behavior with what their body wants them to do. So I'm assuming that like when people are kind of fighting their circadian rhythm, because they have to, for example, it doesn't really help in getting that good quality. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right, right? So I mean, imagine if you tried to go to bed at 10 o'clock every night, you'd probably have a really hard time falling asleep. And then if you tried to be waking up at 6 a.m. every day, you'd miss a big chunk of when your body wants to sleep. And so you'd ultimately probably get relatively poor quality plus not enough quantity of sleep, right? And the same is true if somebody who's a morning person for whatever reason is forced to go to bed really late, well, they'll fall asleep really quickly because it's the middle of the night their time, but then, <coughs> excuse me, when they, they won't be able to sleep in in the morning because their biological day will start at six or 6.30, their eyes will pop open, they just feel like they're done. Even though they know they haven't gotten enough sleep, their body says, nope, I'm done sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, and so they too will walk around sleep deprived because they're not getting a sufficient quantity of sleep. So yeah, the fighting our circadian rhythms uh, is tough. Uh, mm -hmm. And if somebody has to for 
job reasons or family responsibility reasons or whatever it is, if somebody has to fight their circadian rhythms, there are some strategies that can be used to try to help your normal rhythms shift forward or backwards to better match what you have to be doing because of your responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But it takes some active work to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, we did talk a little bit about how sleep relates to mental health um, and other things like substance abuse, but I feel like we haven't touched on it enough considering it's the topic for today. Um, how, how does sleep relate to mental health? Sleep has a bi-directional relationship with mental health. So poor sleep influences poor mental health. Poor mental health influences poor sleep. The sleep going towards mental health direction is a bit stronger than the other way around. So to make this more concrete, um, we know that if somebody has insomnia today in sort of the way that I was describing insomnia earlier, if somebody has insomnia today, they are at increased risk of developing depression, a whole host of different anxiety disorders, substance abuse, bipolar disorder, psychosis if they're genetically at risk of psychosis, even PTSD if they're exposed to a trauma. So people are at risk of developing a whole host of mental health disorders because they are poor sleeping now. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that if somebody has a history of a mental health disorder um, and they get it treated, now they're doing fine, they're in remission, if they develop a sleep problem, they're at greater risk of relapse. And that's especially true, again, in depression, in bipolar, um, in alcohol abuse uh, disorders in particular, and again, in things like schizophrenia, if somebody is genetically predisposed to developing schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Sleep loss isn't gonna turn somebody into, um, uh, isn't gonna create schizophrenia, but if you are at risk for it, it can trigger those episodes. So, so sleep, um, plays a big role in our vulnerability or resilience to the development of mental health disorders. Yeah, yeah. I've got, this is a bit of a personal question, but you know, I've dealt with chronic depression um, in my like adult life as well. And something I found in my experience is that it doesn't actually disrupt my sleep. Or maybe it does disrupt my sleep, but I sleep a lot more. So I'm sleeping way more than I sh than what is kind of considered normal. Um, and sometimes I wake up feeling well rested, but a lot of the times I wake up thinking, why did I sleep so much? I wasted the entire day. Is that something that you've come across quite a bit or do you consider that to be disordered sleeping as well? Yeah, absolutely. So depression is interesting because um, it is a disorder where some people experience insomnia and they can't sleep even though they want to. And other people experience what we call hypersomnia, which is they're sleeping way too much and, and potentially more than they actually want to. Um, and so it can kind of go either direction with insomnia. And we don't have really a good handle on why one person would go one direction and one person would go another, but they are both types of sleep problems that can occur in the context of depression. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what we see is that it sort of mentioned earlier, if you have insomnia, it seems to put at risk of a depressive ep episode developing. We don't know that the same is true for hypersomnia. So often people with depression will not experience that excessive sleepiness outside of their depressed episodes. Mm -hmm. Whereas if somebody has insomnia, they will experience that outside of their depressed episodes. Right. Um, and that then becomes the risk factor for relapsing. Right, right, yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. And is, is, is hypersomnia kind of something that you've noticed in other forms of mental health problems as well? Is that something that comes up quite a bit or? It's less common than, than insomnia, mm -hmm. but it certainly is there. So it can be relatively common in bipolar disorder as well, uh, which is sometimes called manic depression. Um, and it can, those are probably the two most common areas where it comes up from a mental health perspective. The other area where you see it is as a side effect for medications. Uh, a number of, of the psychiatric medications have sleepiness, particularly daytime sleepiness, as a side effect. Mm -hmm. And so you can sometimes see it in an individual with a mental health disorder, but it's not because of the mental health disorder, it's because of the side effect of the medications. 
Yep, yep, yep. So I guess how, I'm, I'm also assuming like a lot of that stuff you were talking about and kind of setting yourself up to maintain a good sleep and it's a lot harder when people are dealing with mental health problems. What, what would you recommend um, for people who are having those issues? How do they regulate this kind of thing? Yeah, so again, I think the trying to maintain a regular sleep-wake schedule mm-hmm. is um, a really important first step. And the reason for that is it helps to regulate the amount of sleep that somebody's getting. And we know that getting a healthy amount of sleep will help with um, mental health problems. And in fact, there's an, uh, a lot of um, both direct and indirect uh, data suggesting that getting a healthy amount of sleep will actually help somebody benefit from the treatment for mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, and the other thing that maintaining a regular sleep wake schedule does is it helps stabilize our circadian rhythms that we were talking about earlier. So essentially waking up at the same time every day, particularly if you get exposure to bright light, um, either daylight, sunlight or just really bright indoor light that helps to reset our circadian rhythms mm-hmm. and having a stable circadian rhythm is also um, protective from a mental health perspective and so so that regularity really is key in many ways and i say that recognizing that it can be very difficult to maintain that regular sleep wake schedule particularly in something like depression which comes with often uh, fatigue and poor motivation and things like that and um, and other mental health disorders you know the the symptoms of the disorder might flip the other way and, and make it um, hard to go to bed on time and instead you're staying up really late or waking up super early and right and so um, it I, I appreciate it's easier said than done. But I do think it is one of those things that uh, can go a long way Mm -hmm. to helping. The other thing I would say actually, particularly in the context of mental health disorders, is if somebody is experiencing really disruptive sleep, go to your GP, get a referral to a sleep clinic and let somebody at the sleep clinic help. Um, there are very, very good evidence-based interventions for all of the sleep difficulties. They work, particularly the insomnia interventions, work exceedingly well in the context of mental health disorders. Um, and we know it, that we can treat the sleep, fix it, and that will have knock-on effects on the mental health symptoms. It will help to improve them. It won't necessarily make them disappear, but will help to improve them. And it will make it more likely that somebody can then engage in treatment for the mental health disorder itself. And, And the nice thing about that also is that treating sleep doesn't have the same stigma that sadly treating mental health does, right? It's much harder to admit to a mental health problem than to admit to being a poor sleeper. And so often the treating sleep can be that foot in the door where if somebody feels much safer to go in and say, hey, I'm having really bad insomnia, can you help me with that? Get that treated. Um, that will, as I said, both improve some of the mental health symptoms and often makes people more open to then going in and treating the mental health independently if that is what's indicated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I think also just something as simple as just having external help uh, to kind of get you through it can be really, really important when, like you mentioned, self-regulation can get a lot harder for people with a lot of various kinds of mental health disorders. So just having someone else help regulate one of those things for you can really, really make a world of difference. Yeah, agreed. And I think, and so the, the gold standard intervention for insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it is a multi-week, usually six to eight, something like that, um, intervention. And the the role of the of the therapist in that intervention is not only to teach you how to repair your sleep and get your brain sleeping at the right time and the right amount again, but also to hold you accountable so that you are following through on the behavior changes that they're asking you to make. Um, and those behavior changes are often 
counterintuitive and not easy to do. And so having that external accountability, as you say, is extremely critical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that does bring us to the end of our interview segment. Um, I wanted to move on to the practice slash habit experiment debrief, where we talk a little bit about a practice, um, something practical to take into account to help improve your sleep. Um, and maybe deal with sleep disorder because I'm assuming sleep disorders are a lot more common than people, th th than we think. They are extremely common. So yeah. 10 to 15% of the population at any one time has um, an ins a diagnosable insomnia disorder. Mm. Many more than that are having more like acute disruptions in their sleep that might turn into an insomnia disorder. Mm. And we haven't even talked about all the other sleep disorders. So, yeah. so yes, they're very common. Yeah, that, that's a huge chunk of the population. Um, what's the practice that you do or you recommend to deal with sleep disorder and also help improving your mental health in the process? Yeah, well, this is gonna shock your listeners, but I maintain a regular sleep-wake schedule. Um, so I'm a 10 to six sleeper. Uh, now, again, sort of uh, acknowledging that it's hard to do it on the weekends through careful negotiations with my wife, um, we do sleep in on our days off a bit. Um, so in our case, we'll sleep in for an hour, or hour and a half. And often that's also related to going to bed a little bit later because we're watching a movie or hanging out or whatever. Um, but certainly on uh, work nights, it's very regular 10 to six schedule. Um, I happen to be one of these people that's extremely sensitive to caffeine. So I tend to not drink any caffeine after breakfast. Um, though with Melbourne's coffee culture, it's a little hard to not occasionally have an afternoon coffee. Yeah. <laughs> but even then I try to go for something like a chai latte or something that won't have caffeine in it. Yeah. Um, and um, I do my best to not drink alcohol after dinner. Okay. Uh, so that, again, it doesn't disrupt my sleep at night, right? Okay. And so, and you can see even actually from all of my answers, I'm an expert who knows exactly what to do and I don't do it perfectly, <laughs> right? So I totally get it. But, um, but those are the things that I very consciously do in effort to keep my sleep healthy. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like with, these practices it's impossible to do them perfectly i just think human nature doesn't allow you to execute anything perfectly so you have to allow for be kind to yourself and allow for some yeah yeah that's that's absolutely right and i think even when we um like when we're treating insomnia and we get somebody sleeping really well again and we're sending them back out into the world on their merry way right we emphasize that you're not gonna sleep perfectly every night and that's okay, right? You don't have to sleep perfectly every night to still be a quote, good sleeper. Mm -hmm. I think in fact, if somebody has six, eight bad nights a month, you're still a good sleeper. Yeah. If it starts to get more than that, you know, that's when we start to get a bit of a concern, but everybody has poor sleep every now and then, and that's totally normal. Yeah, for sure, for sure. What, what, that's kind of one of the challenges is <laughs> in trying to maintain it consistently. But what, what are kind of the other challenges you've come across um, in doing this? Um, so I think the, the, essentially the lifestyle choices are the biggest challenges. So the, um, the pressure to work late at night and yeah. or to get up early and do it or simply the desire to um, socialize with people or spend time on social media or uh, binge watch whatever the latest binge watching thing is right all of those are conscious choices that people make uh, that make it difficult to really maintain good healthy sleep patterns and mm -hmm. and i think when people make those choices they don't do it intentionally thinking ah oh, well screw sleep i'm going to do this other thing yeah. they just they're they enjoy whatever the other thing is and so that's what they're doing and they do it without thinking about the fact that they're sacrificing sleep so i i guess i would hope then that folks listening to this podcast would at least be prompted to think about that decision and do it in a very conscious way so that at least some of the time they choose sleep instead of the other activity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like when you were kind of listing out those reasons that people might sacrifice sleep for, I, I was just thinking, yes, I have definitely made a choice to not sleep and binge watch an entire show instead. And it's not like, it's not so much that I am consciously like oh i don't need to sleep tonight like i definitely do and definitely as i'm watching the show i'm like i should probably <laughs> i should probably head to bed now but i think it's also you know when you work kind of your eight hours a day and it's like well i kind of want to relax now mm -hmm. and if relaxing means 
watching that entire TV show in one night. Um, so be it. As long as you kind of make up for it the next day or continue to not do that every single night, I think. Yeah, yeah. Although let me emphasize that we can't make up for all of the sleep that we lose. Okay. Um, you can bank your sleep. And so if you know you're going to be sleep deprived for some reason or another, you can get extra sleep the night before or take a, a nap that day uh, to get extra sleep during the day. And, and you actually then can um, delay the negative impacts of sleep deprivation by banking sleep. You, you, you won't eliminate them, but you'll delay them. So you'll be able to continue to function longer while you're sleep deprived than mm -hmm. if you did not bank the sleep. However, catching up, you never really catch up 100% of what okay. you lose. And so, um, yeah, no, that's really that's a really good tip. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that in mind for the next time I decide to stay <laughs> up and watch an entire TV show in one go. Um, although I don't really decide until until it's, it's in, too late. Until it's too late. <laughs> un until I've got it open, I'm like I should I should I should start this TV show at 10 p.m. <laughs> um, so, uh, what? How? What do you kind of? How do you begin to figure out what is a good sleep? Um, sleep wake schedule for yourself like how, how do you how do you sort that out because we talked a lot about circadian rhythm and like working along with your body and, and that kind of thing how do you learn what's best for you yeah so probably one of the simplest ways would be uh, do you feel like you are functioning fine during the day right? if you're walking around and you're not sleepy you never feel like you need to nap uh, you never feel like um, you're uh, concentration, your ability to think, your ability to work is being impacted by poor sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you never have periods of poor concentration. We all do for one reason or another, right? Mm -hmm. But if you um, are generally functioning fine during the day and you wake up in the morning feeling like you got a reasonable night of sleep and you're fairly refreshed, then your sleep's probably fine, right? right? I think people don't, in some respects, people don't have to think too hard about it the hallmark of a good sleeper is someone who doesn't really think about their sleep. And uh, they're able to sleep when they want to, and they wake up and they're able to function during the day and everything's fine. That's probably the, the number one hallmark of a good sleeper is you just don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When sleep starts to deteriorate, that's when we start to, to think about it a little bit more. But, um, and so if you start to notice that your functioning during the day is impaired in one way or another and you feel like that's related to the fact that you're not sleeping well if you're consistently waking up in the morning and you are um, still tired you're not feeling refreshed those are signs that something is going wrong with your sleep either the timing of your sleep isn't correct because you're not with your circadian rhythms or there's some um, sleep disorder disruption related to your sleep that is disrupting it or there's something uh, more out of your control, like there's a three-month-old infant in the room next door screaming in the middle of the night. Um, you know, those are uh, those are the times when people need to start thinking that maybe there's a sleep problem, and I need to do something about that. Yeah, yeah, so understandable. Um, how how do you feel like this? Yeah, maintaining a proper sleep schedule and getting that good sleep. How do you feel like that impacts your personal? development and your perception in life? Well, I think it's, you know, for all of the reasons that we've talked about, getting sufficient quantity and quality of sleep helps people to be the best version of themselves um, and to live the way that they want to live, right? Because I think all of the negative impacts of poor sleep push us in the other direction. Right? Yeah. and just make it harder to do those things that, that we want to do. And so very much like nutrition and exercise, it really is just part of the base of the pyramid mm -hmm. uh, that um, we have to have stable so that everything else doesn't fall apart. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and based, would you, would you recommend this to everyone? Or are there perhaps sections of the population that might not necessarily suit it? Um, there is no section of the population that does not need good quantity and quality of sleep. Yeah. Right. I mean, just like there's no section of the population, again, that, that doesn't need good physical health and that doesn't 
need proper nutrition. Uh-huh. We all need it. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I think, yeah, there's, there's nobody who doesn't. Yeah, for sure. And based on your experience, do you have any other recommendations or habits or practices to be combined with this? So I will, um, maybe I'll talk about uh, a practice, a common practice that can actually be unhelpful. Okay. Yeah. And that is paying too much attention to our sleep trackers, uh-huh. right? So um, the sleep tracker business is uh, tens of billions of dollars a year nationwide, and there are more brands of sleep trackers that we can wear on our wrist or put under our mattress or put on our nightstand than I could possibly list here. Um, and they can be both helpful and they can be actually quite harmful. And um, the way that they can be harmful is if people start paying more attention to the sleep tracker than to their own feelings. Mm-hmm. So there's some really interesting science that shows you can take someone who's a perfectly good sleeper and you say, oh, you know, this sleep tracker you wore last night says you had a really bad night of sleep. Yeah. They then will, for the rest of the day, feel like they're not performing well and they actually objectively will perform worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take someone who had a relatively poor night and say, oh no, you're you know, wristwatch said you had a great night of sleep and they actually will feel better during the day and perform better during the day. And so, um, so uh, these trackers can give us um, unhelpful messages about our sleep. And in particular, they can lead to something called orthosomnia, which is where somebody obsessively pays attention to every little thing related to their sleep. Uh, and is constantly looking out for the signals that they're not sleeping well and that poor sleep is impacting them during the day. Um, and these devices, I mean, through no fault of their own, they're not trying to do this, um, but it can really exacerbate those sorts of problems. Mm. And I think then the, the other thing related to these trackers that I want to let folks know is um, what they can and cannot measure. So almost all of the commercial sleep trackers out there do a very good job of saying, are you awake or are you asleep? So as a zero one kind of uh, dichotomous answer, which means they can do a pretty good job of saying how many hours you got last night. Um, What they cannot do is measure sleep stages. So lots of them will tell you, you got this much REM sleep, you got this much light sleep, you got this much deep sleep. Not a one out there has been shown to be independently Um, has been independently shown to be sufficiently accurate to pay attention to them. So I tell all my clients in the clinic to just ignore the sleep stages entirely. Mm. They're just, and those are some of the things that drive people nuts because they'll say, oh, my sleep tracker said I only got, you know, 15 minutes of deep sleep last night. So my sleep was really poor quality. And that's, it's just um, sufficiently inaccurate that it's not worth paying attention to from that perspective. What they do a good job of, again, is saying you're asleep for seven and a half hours and you were asleep for, you know, roughly 90% of the time that you were trying to sleep. Right. Those sorts of numbers, it does okay um, because it can tell when you're awake and when you're asleep, but it can't tell anything about the depth or the quality of the sleep. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I know that sleep trackers are still quite popular. Um, I don't have one myself, but I have my phone, which assumes that I've gone to sleep at the time I tell it I want to sleep. Uh, so I feel like it has a skewed view because sometimes I just do not fall asleep. Like it'll it'll be on sleep mode and then it assumes I'm kind of asleep. And then, yeah, it knows when I wake up, though. It's very good at figuring that out. Um, I don't know how, because I don't check my phone. I try not to check my phone as soon as I wake up, but for whatever reason, it gets the right. Yeah, (laughs) well, the phone apps that are based on that tend to be based on um, movement and activity on the phone. So they assume that when it's been inactive for a certain amount of time, Mm. that suggests you've gone to sleep. most people aren't as disciplined as you, and so they end up checking their phone right away, yeah. or their phone is their alarm, and so they have to do something. Actually, to I was the just thinking off. it was probably the alarm. Um, yeah, and so that's a pretty good indicator of wake time. Mm. The uh, and and shockingly, actually, maybe it shouldn't be shocking. Uh, the studies that have looked at this actually suggest that um, there is a very high correlation between the last moment someone plays with their phone or does anything on their phone 
and when they actually fall asleep or when they actually try to fall asleep, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what those algorithms are loosely based on. Right. But again, they are, um, they're probably even less accurate than are the wristwatch-based things mm -hmm. that are um, all based on motion. And right. so they basically say, when you're moving around, you must be awake. When you're not moving around, you must be asleep. Right. I didn't realize they were based on motion. I thought they were based on something a bit more sophisticated than that. Uh, considering they talk about phases of sleep, I That's would have right. assumed that they... Well, the ones that talk about phases of sleep are also based on heart rate. Right. And so, um, but they're just not... There's not a tight enough correlation between the changes in motion plus heart rate right. and the sleep stages to be accurate enough. Right, 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 for sure. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our practice uh, slash habit experiment debrief. Uh, we've now got a couple of questions from audience. Okay. Are you happy to answer them? More than happy. Fantastic. Um, so how can we pivot around sleep and mental health both being issues. How, where do you begin to deal <laughs> with the vicious cycle, I guess, is what they're asking. So that's kind of the, um, <clears throat> where we started in terms of talking about the bi-directional relationship. Sleep affects mental health, mental health affects sleep. Yeah. So what I would say, uh, and, and this came out in various parts of our conversation, there's a lot of good data that suggests start with sleep. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that the strength of the relationship going from sleep to mental health is typically stronger than the one going from mental health to sleep. Mm -hmm. And we typically know for most disorders, most mental health disorders, if you treat sleep, it will have knock-on effects in terms of improving mental health. But if you treat mental health, it doesn't do much to help sleep. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of good reasons to start with the sleep, get that fixed, and then deal with any residual mental health problems that are continuing to create problems. Right, yep, for sure, for sure. And we did already kind of cover that a little bit earlier in the episode. Uh, this one uh, says, I tend to stay awake, not because of digital devices, but because I'm thinking too hard. How do I relax my thoughts before bed? Ah, this is classic, yes. Yeah. So um, one of the major issues we see in folks with insomnia is I can't turn my brain off at night. Mm -hmm. And there's a concept called conditioned arousal where when somebody ends up spending a lot of time in bed awake, particularly when they're in bed awake, thinking, ruminating, problem solving, and they might even be thinking about good things, right? But they're awake thinking in bed, can't turn their brain off. The brain starts to learn, wait a minute, the bed isn't a place to fall asleep, the bed is a place to lie there and think and to ruminate and to problem solve and sometimes to stress and whatever it is that's rolling through their brain, right? And so the bed becomes a trigger, not for sleep, but for thinking. And the classic example of this is somebody who is sitting on the couch, binging on their TV show, eyes are closing, they're falling asleep, they're like, oh my God, I, I gotta go to bed, I can't stay awake any longer. And they get up and they go and they lie in bed and bam, their eyes pop open and their mind starts to race and they can't fall asleep. That's classic and that's called conditioned arousal. And so there's a couple of ways to deal with that, right? One is never spend more than about 10 or 15 minutes in bed awake. So if you get into bed and you find that your brain is going and going and going and you can't shut the darn thing off, get out of bed do something else that's relaxing in a dimly lit room um, until you start to get that drowsy, sleepy feeling and feel like you're gonna fall asleep again and then you go back into bed and give it another go. Mm -hmm. Because what you don't want is continuing to build the association between being in bed and being awake, being in bed and thinking too much. Mm -hmm. So that's one strategy. A, a related strategy would be to develop a bedtime routine that includes a wind down relaxation sort of period, right? So your bed bedtime routine could be as simple as, I brush my teeth, I wash my face, I put on my pajamas, I go to bed. Um, however, if you are having this problem of I can't fall asleep because I'm thinking, you might want to extend that bedtime routine for 20, 30, 40 minutes. People have to just play to figure out what the time for them is, but have a, um, relaxing, non-TV, non-digital set of um, uh, activities that you engage in. And again, it will be a little bit different for different people. Some people might meditate, some people might pray, some people um, might do deep breathing, um, other relaxation sorts of techniques. Some people might listen to a soothing 
podcast, book on tape, music, whatever it is, something that helps you relax, wind down, um, so that you can essentially put your brain and your body in the best possible state to um, be able to fall asleep when you finally get into bed. Mm -hmm. And that isn't going to immediately eliminate the condition arousal that turns your brain back on. But if you start at a lower state when you get into bed, then that condition arousal is going to lift you to not quite as high of a state. And it'll be easier to then overcome it mm-hmm. through some of the other techniques. So those are the couple of things that, that um, I would try in that context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What, uh, this is a hyper-specific question. Does tea actually help you sleep better? And what teas help? <laughs> um, so I will, okay. If the tea has caffeine, the answer is clearly no. Okay. Um, because caffeine absolutely disrupts sleep. Mm-hmm. There's a little asterisk on that comment that I'll come back to in a second, I guess. But um, so if, if it's caffeinated tea, no. The decaf tea, I would say that there is no evidence that any particular type of tea promotes sleep. So there's lots of them out there that sell it that way, the chamomile teas, the valerian teas, the kava teas, the whatever teas. Um, you know, every every uh, maker of tea has a sleepy time, dream time sort of tea. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that any of that stuff actually promotes sleep. Mm-hmm. And where there, where it has been studied, so lots of those supplements have been studied, and the evidence typically is that they don't help, but they don't hurt. And so they're basically placebos. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, That's good to know from a me perspective as well. (laughs) So thank you to the audience member who asked this question because I did genuinely want to know. Uh, But that does bring us to the end of the questions from the audience. Okay. Um, Now we're moving on to our open mic segment where I allow you to have a TED talk about whatever you please. It could be relevant to today's topic. topic. It could be something that you want to promote. Did you have something in mind? Something that maybe you want to stand on your soapbox and... (laughs) let the people know i don't think so i mean i think we talked about most of the issues that are really relevant uh to the topic at hand today um and there's nothing uh there's nothing on the more personal side that i feel the need to pontificate about (laughs) today but I, i certainly appreciate the opportunity uh in that case uh happy to wrap up the episode where can um our audience find you well so i um Certainly can be found. I have a uh, lab webpage at Monash University. And so if you just Google my name and Monash, it should come up. Um, the other thing you could do is uh, go to insomnia.org.au, which is really geared towards the various research studies that we have going on, um, some of which directly focus on treating sleep problems, some of which do not. Um, but that will give you a sense of the kind of work that we're doing. and. From that page, there are various links as well that will get you back to the the broad description of my research and my research team. Um, So I think that's where they can find me. Fantastic. Um, I've had a great time chatting to you. I feel like that episode wasn't long enough. I have so many more questions that I need answered. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Fantastic. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.